I'm Kate Daniels. One of the big challenges for all of us in life, from school days to career days, is the whole area of being average. This morning, we're going to get a wonderfully fresh perspective on this and really a dose of good medicine as we meet Todd Rose, the author of The End of Average, How We Succeed in a World that Values Sameness. Todd Rose is the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at Harvard University, and he joins us now. Todd Rose, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for also doing this work and bringing us such fascinating and important information as we find uh, between the covers of this book, The End of Average, How We Succeed in a World that Values Sameness. So this is going to be good news uh, for more than a few of us, perhaps uh, the majority of us, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And what I like What I really value in your presentation of all the research that you've done is that you really couch this in stories. And I I feel that we learn so much by that opportunity to hear what's going on uh, in others' lives, what's been happening kind of in general in history. All of that, you really give us quite a broad depth of information and uh so thank you for doing all that research. Well, thank you. Yeah, the, I mean, the research can be so abstract, and the ideas can be abstract, so I think, you know, grounding it in real stories so makes it concrete, I think makes it much more accessible. So taking a look, j- just starting with the end of average, and thinking in terms of stories, part of this is certainly coming from your own personal experience, because here you are, uh, the director of a program at uh, the Harvard Educa- Graduate Education School, and here you are writing this book and talking about this information, and yet uh, you just barely passed high school. Yeah. In fact, I didn't even get that far. I, I actually um, failed out of school uh, my senior year with a 0.9 GPA. <laughs> and I, I kind of think you have to work pretty hard to do that poorly. But, um, but yeah, it, it, you know, I've, I experienced, I think, the, um, the consequences of a poor fit between an average-based system and who I was as an individual. And, you know, it has big consequences. It does. And I th- think what even in this short period of time people may catch is that they perhaps have been in a similar situation or they have kids who are in a similar situation in school and the the fit isn't there and they're struggling and the parent, the teacher thinks, you know, this kid just isn't applying themselves. But that is so far from the truth, isn't it? That's right. I think that, you know, for for those of us that really struggle in in average based systems, you know it can just end up looking like either you just don't have what it takes to be successful, or you're just not working hard enough. But um, what I hope to shed a light on is the fact that much of this is just wasted potential by design. And you know there's extreme cases like my own, um, but I think that in fact most people um, are held back by these kind of systems. Um, and just because you get through doesn't mean we got the most out of your potential. And you go into that, of course, and we may get a chance to touch on that, that companies also end up following that kind of a routine and realize that they're probably missing a lot of important talent in their businesses. Yeah, exactly. And I I think this has really been brought to the forefront now that companies aren't just looking for sort of widgets, right? They're they're looking for 
um, creative individuals, um, you know, in this knowledge economy. And I think we're seeing the failure of average-based approaches to hiring and performance reviews. So that being the case, let's actually jump right into using a story, part of it being that it's uh, is based right here in Seattle with uh, a well-known company with Costco who follows this new, uh, uh, this more proactive and innovative model. Can you share more about that with us? Yeah. And, you know, t- to give them all the credit in the world, I mean, they've they figured this out intuitively, you know, obviously before the book, <laughs> right? Like, um, and, you know, what has been so interesting is getting to spend some time with the founder, Jim Senegal, um, and, you know, you've got Co- Costco that, you know, pays the highest wages in retail, you know, has great health benefits for its employees, and, you know, people just don't leave. They just love working there. And for a long time, people thought that um, that it was not really sustainable, that it's just you're paying too much money. But what's interesting is um, when they focused on really creating fit for individual employees and giving people opportunities that weren't based on degrees, you know, diplomas, um, standard credentials, it turns out that because their employees are so productive and they stay there for so long, they actually spend less per employee than most places like, like a Sam's Club or Walmart. Because there's such a lot, and just using that as the, and you're mentioning it, people, there's such a loss in terms of dollars uh, having to always bring in new people and re-educate, and that turnover is very costly. Yeah, and, and you know, what's interesting is that model of thinking of an employee um, from the industrial age as just, like, something that can be interchangeable, right? It, you don't really want to... It's kind of a, it's a, it tried to employee proof your company, and you know basically you treat people like a cell in a spreadsheet, and then you wonder why no one is engaged at work, and basically you just end up having to have this turnover, which is so expensive as you said, and you know it, we've come to believe that somehow it's either the company makes profit or employees make a decent wage that you can't have both, but Costco is a living breathing example of just how silly that notion is. And I can attest to the fact that the the people are there for the long, long term because as I've gone there over the years, I see the same faces. You, we kind of develop a, a relationship with some of the employees with whom we cross paths on a regular basis. Yep, and I, that's, I had stumbled on them because I've been a longtime <laughs> <laughs> member of Costco. But it's, um, yeah, and the other thing that they do, it's interesting. So um, when they hire you know, like ever, almost everyone starts pushing carts or at the register, and they work really hard to just promote from within. Um, and they have their managers spending the vast majority of their time teaching rather than trying to just govern people. And it, it leads to this this culture and this company in which you know people can rise and, and and realize their full potential in ways that just simply isn't possible in most places. So what is happening is there's always that looking for what is excellent, where a person, an individual is excelling, rather than looking for, you know, where are they tripping up? It, so it's a really important, different perspective on how to succeed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, we're exactly, we're usually looking for what people can't do and just thinking we're trying to select the best from the rest. And I think what Costco really embodies is this movement toward thinking about 
the person in the context and like that you can create better fit for people um, around their strengths and just get the most out of them. And when you do that, everybody wins. Exactly. There's such hope and such uh, a sense of being able to be creative and be able to do something that maybe hasn't even been conceived of or you have not even conceived of yet. And, uh, well, let's just stay with the same company for a moment because you also share a story of a young woman who has had that opportunity. Not that she went to school to have this education, but she's risen to such great heights within the company. Yeah, you're talking about Annette Alvarez-Peters. Yes, and, right. Um, yeah, so today she is um, one of the most powerful people in the entire wine industry globally. Um, and that's an industry that is usually pretty narrow in terms of you have to pass these certain tests, you have to go to the right schools, you know, and I, I would probably even say it's a little bit snobbish, frankly. But, it's, you know, she started out in, I, I believe it was, I think she was like a receptionist, and then she was in, you know, electronics, and she has this really jagged pathway where nothing about her background would suggest that she would be really good at being in charge of buying, you know, wine and other alcoholic beverages, and yet there she is. She rises up because she's given lots of opportunities, and Costco didn't make assumptions about what she was capable of doing. And it seems kind of obvious, right? Like, just look at performance rather than some basic narrow credentials, but we don't do that, and so we miss out on all the, uh, the Annettes of the world. Exactly. And you use a really important term, which comes up so often in the book, is the word jagged. That is something that I guess we might even think of as on the other uh, side of the spectrum from average, is that we are jagged. Yeah, yeah. This it, It's pretty intuitive, but um, <laughs> we, what we've done in in science and in application of these average-based ideas is we try to reduce people to a one-dimensional score, right? Whether we're talking about intelligence or body size, right? You're a medium, right? right. Um, but, but in truth, all human characteristics from body size to character and intelligence are multidimensional, and those dimensions aren't really that related to each other. So what that means is when you look at something like talent, people have strengths and weaknesses, um, and that's just a, like a mathematical guarantee. And what it means, though, is that you simply cannot reduce someone's talent or ability or potential to a single score ever. And when you do that, you lose the essence of who they are. And isn't that what we've been doing over and over again, starting with school for all of us, and then it moves into business, it moves into whatever career paths, there's always uh, doing those evaluations and wanting to make us that flat, one-dimensional creature. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing. If you don't care to know anything about an individual, then the one-dimensional score is good enough, right? If all you care about is the system being efficient, that can be okay. And for a long time, that's what we've cared about. But nowadays, um, you see this movement, whether it's in the workplace or education or in medicine, to a more personalized approach. And the biggest point I wanted to make in the book is, if that's where we want to go as a society, then we actually have to have a better understanding of individuals. And so this idea of jaggedness instead of a one-dimensional score, to me, is the beginning. It's the starting point. If, if you don't understand people's jaggedness, nothing else matters. Like you just simply can't understand them. 
Right. So let's uh, have you share with us another way that uh, another story that comes up in the book that I think demonstrates this and is really critical here as well is uh, the story of the Air Force and how they were trying to get like the ideal pilot. There was going to be this average, right? Right. So the Air Force, this was back in the early 1950s when we had gone from, you know, basic uh, planes to jet-powered aviation, right? Um, we're flying at the speed of sound, and we had all this high-tech stuff. And yeah, they were having huge performance problems. Like, pilots couldn't keep control of their planes, and they were trying to figure out what the problem was. And after blaming just about everything they could, they, they realized the problem was the cockpit. And here's what it was. Ever since the Civil War, the basic design philosophy for the military in terms of creating fit, whether it was a cockpit or a jumpsuit or something, was to design for the average-sized pilot, right? So they would take, let's say, 10 dimensions of size, and they would calculate the average of all the pilots and say, now build something for that. And it almost seems intuitive. Like, if you're going to make one cockpit, if you did it for the average-sized pilot, it would cover most people. But there was, <laughs> there was one guy, uh, Gilbert Daniels, who was like 23 years old at the time. He'd been brought in to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. They had asked him to do a brand-new study of 4,000 pilots, to calculate a better average. And he figured out, like, actually the average was the problem. So he did this study, and he asked a basic question. Of the 4,000 pilots they were studying, how many were average on these 10 dimensions of size? And he found that zero. Like, there literally was no such thing as an average pilot. And instead, what they found was every single pilot had this jagged size profile. So they were, like, on the high end on some things, and they were in the middle on some things, and they were on the low end on some things like every single one. So what they discovered was if you designed a cockpit on average, it literally fit nobody. And to their everlasting credit, the second they realized that, they actually instituted a ban on average-based design and forced companies to build flexible cockpits that had things like adjustable seats, which <laughs> you can't believe they didn't have before. But just simply doing that, designing flexibly, solved their problem and actually expanded the talent pool that they had moving forward. There's just so much that is so awesome about that, uh, not the least of which is that industry rebelling against it, saying, well, we can't possibly, you know, make a cockpit that's going to fit each individual pilot. But we see that there was a solution and it wasn't all that challenging. And it's made a world of difference in, well, the cars that we drive today. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's funny because it has some parallels today because, yeah, when when the military said, look, we, we want designing to the edges. You need to do that. Like these companies weren't built for that, right? They were they were used to average-based design. They knew how to do that. And so rather than just try to ad adapt to it, they really pushed. They pushed Congress. They tried to like stop it. And they said, "Look, it's just going to be too expensive. It's it's too challenging of an engineering problem. It'll take years to solve." But once they realized that the military was not going to budge because this was literally like a life or death issue and performance and <laughs> Once they realized that, it, it took hardly any time before they realized, wait a minute, well, we could put adjustable seats in. Like, they didn't have <laughs> adjustable seats in the planes. And, you know, these little simple solutions went a long way. And I think, you know, today, say, in education, we talk about creating personalized learning environments, and people think, well, yeah, come on, that's, that's too expensive. You couldn't do that, it, you know. But, in fact, we still design textbooks on average. We encourage it. We pay for that. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? You could you could absolutely expect that anyone that makes money selling textbooks into public schools 
should design them as flexibly as we design cockpits. Precisely. And that is a, a great transition to education these days, which is, of course, the field that you're in. And let us mention that these stories and this information is in this fabulous new book, The End of Average, How We Succeed in a World that Values Sameness. And hopefully what this is leading us to, Todd, is to take a look at this and realize that there is this jaggedness, that there is this these differences, and that there is then hope and an opportunity to really build on those talents that perhaps haven't even uh, come to light yet, but uh, the classroom could then be that opportunity if we look at individualized study. Yeah, and I think, you know, I tried to lay this out in the book a little bit, which is like the design of our educational institutions was based on average and rank, like how far you deviate from average. That was the basis for it, and it was historically not meant to nurture talent. It was meant to batch process and sort the best from the rest. And maybe in the industrial age, that was what was needed. Maybe that was the best we could do. But the reality is now we absolutely need more and more kinds of talent than we've ever needed before as, a, as an economy. And we actually have the technology and the science to architect a different foundation for education, one that truly does meet every kid where they're at and gives them what they need to meet their potential. And I actually think most people think that's where we're going now with education. Um, but what I feel like what keeps me up at night is realizing that, we, again, we have the science and we have the technology, but just because we have that doesn't mean we'll do it right. And um, one can easily see a scenario where the people that have a lot get personalized environments, and the people that don't have very much don't. And then we just end up exacerbating inequality. So part of this push for me is to say we could do personalized education in a really equitable way, but not if we're thinking about kids on average and, and rank. Exactly. And and that is so key here is to make this available to each and every student, each and every individual because that's where we're going to really thrive and see success. Otherwise, uh, we're, we're just going to lapse into the same old sameness. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that, um, you know, in the past, we've gotten used to this very pessimistic view of human potential, right? That there's only some people who are talented, and, and most people are mediocre, and then there's a few on the tail end that kind of drag everyone down. And it's just not true. Like, And I'm not even trying to be, like, just optimistic about it. I just... As a scientific fact, it's not true that when you create highly favorable conditions, most people are capable of pretty great things. And the problem is, is that you can't get there if you continue to rely on averages to understand individuals. And so for me, I think this is a pretty hopeful message that we've got a lot of challenges as a society, but we actually have the tools and the knowledge to do things we could never have done even 10 years ago. And for me, the, the first step in getting there is this mindset shift away from averages and toward individuality. There's a, a great example, uh, one of many, but one that comes to mind that I read the story of India, where uh, a young man decided to start his own company and did just what you're saying, where there were the underprivileged that were given an opportunity, and and it was just astounding, you know, wonderful what the results were. Yeah, yeah. This was, um, 
Sridhar Vembu from Zoho is the company's name. And um, <laughs> my organization actually uses their products now. They're just fantastic. Um, and yeah, they, he was he started an, an IT company. Um, and you know, India is in many ways even more rigid and hierarchical in terms of like if you didn't go to the best tech school, forget it, right? Like it, no one's going to touch you. And but he had been um, taking people from a wide range of schools. And after about 10 years, he looked at his own data and realized there actually wasn't a correlation between where you went to school or how well you did and how you thrived in the company. And so he, he thought, well, if I really believed that, like, what would I do? And so he did this kind of what he thought was like a social charity experiment where he created what's called Zoho University. And it's not really a university. It's like a little <laughs> couple of rooms um, on their campus. But um, he went to essentially the untouchables, right, rural India, kids and said, I don't care if you've ever even seen a computer or if you speak English or whatever, if you want this, we'll give you a paid internship for 18 months and there's no contract. You don't have to work for them afterwards or anything, but we'll give you a job too. And so you take these kids that no one thought were capable of much and said, we'll give you a chance. And he thought, well, maybe, maybe you'd find one diamond in the rough. But after, you know, after about a decade of doing this, Right now, currently, somewhere between 20 and 25% of all of their engineers have come through this program. And it's been such a success that they just committed to making it half of their company. And for me, I look at that and think, okay, so clearly we have had a wrong view of talent, right? Like if, if you can only wait till you go through the best schools and then we know you're good at what you do, that's just wrong. And here in the States, you know, we talk about this skills gap where we have these good jobs but we don't have people that with the skills to fill them. And we often think, yeah, because the people just aren't talented enough and whatever. But that's clearly not true. Because if, if Zoho can actually go to rural India and get really talented people that we had missed, I'm sure we can do that here as well. Exactly. And that's where the hope comes in, because we know there are just so many kids who are flunking out of school, just as you were finding yourself back in high school, because that that awareness is not there. There isn't the opportunity to say, well, here, let's try this. Let's go down this path. That individualized learning can just make the world of difference. Yeah. And I mean, essentially, all we're doing is shifting from batch processing kids to really trying to develop potential. And I think, look, I think in a democracy that feels comfortable compelling people to send their kids to school, and if you don't have money, they're going to tell you which school to send your kid to, right? Like, that we feel comfortable enough to do that, that we have to make it a reasonable value for the parents and the kids. And I think that it's just unacceptable to turn, force parents to turn over their kids and their personality and potential to a system that does not care to know them and does not care to develop their talents. And again, if this was 10 years ago, I'm not sure what we would have done about it, but I, I'm telling you, <laughs> we absolutely can do this at scale, and it doesn't even have to cost more money, but it does require a mindset shift. So this is what you are about, what we're about this morning by sharing, revealing this information that, hey, let's look at making the shift if it hasn't even been kind of rumbling around in the back of our minds for a period of time and really make these important necessary changes in our whole system, uh, in our world. Yeah, and and for me, you know, look, in a democracy and in a market-based economy, public demand wins. Right? 
so if we, the people, actually understand like how we want to think about ourselves as people and what that means for the kind of institutions we deserve to have, we can create the demand that will get us these solutions. But without that, we're going to get, just get more of the same. So, Todd, in your role at Harvard at the uh, Graduate School of Education, is this happening with the students that you encounter uh, building in what or challenging them to, with these ideas so that they go out and bring this into the educational s- systems that exist? Yeah, yeah. So we do a lot of that here um, at Harvard. And I have to say, like, I was pleasantly surprised as sort of an outsider coming in, you know, how innovative um, Harvard actually is around this in terms of how we select people um, and what we're trying to teach them. But we're also about getting this to the public. So, um, you know, I also have a nonprofit, the Center for Individual Opportunity, which translates this and uses partnerships to be able to take this and make this freely available to anyone anywhere. Now, that is exciting. How do we find out more about that? Is it on your website? Yeah. So, actually, if you just, my website is www.toddrose.com, and that has all the, the relevant links. Excellent. So here it is. You're making it available in so many ways for each of us to really latch onto it, to become proactive, because it is important that it start with the grassroots, that each of us is aware of it and really promotes it wherever we are at. And particularly, I think, if we are parents, really being those the advocate for them in their educational process. Yeah, I think parents are actually the key because, you know, especially if you think about education, it, the, the levers of change are so distributed, you know, local and state levels, that there really is no other constituency that can be organized um, in service of change like parents. And so, you know, we have some parent work uh, with a partner organization called Parents Education Network that's about getting these ideas in the hands of parents and helping them um, shape how they see their own kids and to be able to affect change locally. Oh, just so exciting. I mean, the, that hopefulness is such a key here, I think, for uh, for parents, but for kids who have perhaps struggled and have been led to think that they need to fit into some sort of mold, such as not the case, that is not really where they're going to thrive. No. I mean, in fact, it's like, it's a basic, like in, in capitalism, you know, it's called comparative advantage. You're supposed to find the thing that you are you love and that you're good at and like really double down on that but our whole systems of opportunity actually force you to conform right they want you to be kind of like an average student and an average employee and like that's just not a good way to live your life and i think that look in this new system that we're talking about you're still going to have to work hard right like you're still it's not that everyone's a genius at everything but we're going to meet you halfway right we're going to build systems that that know you the way your parents know you, and actually help you develop your talents rather than mask them. Exactly. As we already noted in terms of uh, what's happened uh, for staff at Costco, who is uh, all over the country, so those opportunities exist that way. But, uh, you know, reaching across the ocean to India, where this is already also uh, an example of Zoho and, and what's being done there, we, we see this is really 
you know, living, breathing, uh, great stuff that's happening. And we just need to become more informed and move forward with it ourselves. Yeah. So I, I think what was most pleasantly surprising for, for me when I wrote the book is that in every sector I looked at, there are bright spots. There are like proof of what's possible. But they're on the fringe of the system because the system is still based around these ideas of average and rank. And the thing is, is what we have to do now is just move those bright spots to the center of the system, um, whether we're talking about education, the workplace, or medicine. And for me, again, it comes back to public mindset. If we can change the way we think about ourselves as people, we're halfway there. Exactly. Well, Todd Rose, you have really done so much of the work for us, I feel, by making us aware. Now what we do is learn more. And I think the end of Average, your new book, How We Succeed in a World that Values Sameness, is a great opportunity to be educated, be informed, and be able to move forward uh, in our own communities. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. For your work, let's mention your website once again. Sure. It's www.toddrose.com. Excellent. Lots of information there. And, of course, the book, newly available, so available through all of our favorite book sources, right? That's right. Excellent. Well, Todd, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, So great to have you share this information with us this morning. Thank you for your work and for taking time with us. Thanks for having me.